The following message by Pastor Scott is brought to you by Together in Christ. If you would, go ahead and open with me to the book of Philemon. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that that's, this is where we've been camping out. But if you haven't been with us, maybe this is your first time here. I'm glad you decided to visit us on a Sunday night. Um, but we've been looking at this very short book. It's just one chapter long. Most books of the Bible have more than one chapter, but this is just one. It's a letter written by a guy named Paul to his friend, Philemon. Uh, if you have trouble finding it, you can maybe just find the book of Hebrews and go to the very beginning. Or if you can't even do that, you can always use the table of contents. It's, there's no problem there. But um, we've been looking at the book of Philemon, and I hope that what you've seen as I've spent the last two weeks and as I'm going to do today, I hope what you've seen is that you can take such a small portion of the Bible and find avenues and go down rabbit holes and, and chase things and, and just have the truth of Scripture light up your eyes to see things that you normally wouldn't see if you just read through a chapter of the Bible, which is what Philemon is. And that's what I've really tried to help us do, and I want to try to do it one more time. Um, if you were here last week, you remember, and before I go any further, I, just, I do want to say this, that tonight will be a little bit different. Um, it's not going to be the normal way that I would preach. It's going to be very, pretty topical, looking at one specific thing in Philemon, but I think just because of where we've gone and what we looked at last week, it would be really helpful just to camp out on this one thing and try to answer a few questions that have come to the surface because we've been studying this. But basically last week, as we were going through trying to find the layout of Philemon, why is this letter here? What was Paul doing? Why was he writing to his friend? We looked at like, who is Onesimus in this book? Why is he, where does he come into this? And what, how does Paul relate to both these people? There is a little, um, I kind of dropped a bomb in the, in the middle of my sermon, uh, a little detail about the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And I just kind of left it there. Uh, because I didn't want to deal with it until tonight when I would be able to spend the whole night uh, doing uh, that because there's a lot that you need to go into to fully understand maybe what's going on and how we as 21st century Christians should look at this book and how we should do that, whether we are looking at it with eyes that have been more impacted by recent history than ancient history. And so I want us to do that tonight. That detail of Onesimus and Philemon's relationship is the fact that Onesimus most likely, as we can tell, is Philemon's slave. That's what we can tell. Now, I went over this last week, but just to refresh us, and there's some people that are here that maybe weren't here last week. I want to go through, why do I think that? What reason do we have to think that Onesimus was Philemon's slave that Paul's writing about? There's three reasons. The first one you can find in verse 16. When it says, I'll start before that in verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant. That word bond servant, a synonym for that is literally slave. Many other times when Paul writes to people, he will introduce himself as a bond servant to Christ. But in this context, he is applying Onesimus as a bond servant to Philemon. That's the first one. The second one was in verse 14, which 
when Paul, he's writing, he says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. And that word compulsion, that's really what we spent our time on last week was how we as Christians don't live and uh, project our faith and lead people to faith and even disciple people by compulsion, but we look for them to do it out of their own good. But in the beginning of that verse where Paul says that he doesn't want to do something without Philemon's consent, that thing he's referencing is keeping Onesimus with him. Why would Paul need consent from Philemon about keeping Onesimus with him unless somehow Philemon had say-so over what Onesimus did? And so if we interpret verse 16, bondservant to be a slave, that makes sense with the context that we find in verse 14, because in that context, he would need consent. The third reason that we can think that he was a slave is because of his name. I don't think I did a very good job of explaining this last week. I kind of gave you half of the explanation. So if you were wondering why his name Onesimus, which is the Greek word for useful, how would that impact him being a slave? Well, the reason is because his name was Onesimus. The Greek word for that is useful. But in this ancient time, masters would usually name their slaves what they hoped that slave would be. That was culturally normal. And so it makes sense. Onesimus was a very common slave's name in this day and age. And so his name meant useful. Whoever his master was, maybe Philemon was his first master, his only master, or I don't know, maybe he was sold or something like that, that they named him Onesimus because they wanted him to be useful to their master. So those are the three reasons we have to believe that Onesimus was a slave to Philemon. Now that circumstance adds a whole new level of complexity to this letter because it brings to bear some pretty big questions that we have to ask. We, when you come to a detail like that, you don't just glaze over it because the glaring question that we might wanna ask is, okay, so what we know Paul wanted Philemon to do was to receive back Onesimus. That's what we talked about last week. Paul wants these two men that are not getting along to reconcile with one another. Now, the question is this, does that reconciliation necessitate freedom? Is Paul asking Philemon to free Onesimus from his slavery? That actually brings a bigger question that comes even before that. What was Philemon, a Christian? What was Philemon, the man that let the Colossian church meet in his home? Why did he even own slaves in the first place? Those are pretty big questions. In our modern age, you're probably not surprised by this, the outside culture and the outside world looks at the church and our history and our scriptures with suspect. And they point the finger and they say, mm -mm, I don't know if I wanna believe that. Look at this. Here's a few examples for you. They'll look back at our history and they'll see times of inquisition where people would be killed because they did not believe very specific things. There were wars fought between Protestants and Catholics. There were crusades to the Holy Land where 
great atrocities happened. Our world will look at those things and they will say that discredits Christianity. They will look at places in scripture, our own scripture where God commands entire cities to be destroyed for entire groups of people to be killed in conquest. How could a loving God command the genocide of people? They'll point to that. They have problems with it. They'll point to Old Testament laws that tell how, uh, for instance, like how in the Old Testament, a homosexual person was to be treated. And they'll say, how can that be right? They'll look at the modern, more modern times of how clergy uh, have systematically molested children in their care, both boys and girls. And they'll say, I don't want no part of that religion where your pastors act like that. They'll look at things like preachers on TV that are asking people to donate hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars to their ministries because of the good it will do. And when you look at their homes, they're essentially castles and they have private jets that they fly around everywhere. And they'll see in that greed and corruption. And they'll say, how on earth can you think this Christianity thing is real? Another thing that they will look at is they will look and they will say that the Bible condones slavery. How on earth could you believe in a God that condones the enslavement of other human beings? What do we say to that? What do we say when that challenge comes our way? They'll say that slavery is endorsed in the Bible. They'll say that the many people in the church throughout history have been slave owners. They'll say that many Christians during around the time of the Civil War in our own country actually argued strongly for slavery and that they used places in the Bible like Philemon to argue for it, that it should be here. We should even, as a church, consider this fact that our church, Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, we are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. That is our denomination. You ever wonder why it's called the Southern Baptist Convention? The Southern Baptist Convention was founded by people that supported American slavery. Did you know that? The whole reason it started is because Northern Baptists did not want to send slave-owning missionaries onto the mission field. They saw it as a disqualifier. And so what did we do? Southern Baptists left that group and we started our own thing and we sent our own missionaries. We have to deal with that as a denomination, as a church. We have to be real about our history and we need to come to these questions and we have to be honest with ourselves and look at the scars from the past, but also the scripture that we have and where we're going in the future. I don't think that's a reason for us to not be part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think it's one of the most healthy conventions and denominations that you can look to today. But we have to look at these questions. And so let's do that. Tonight, I want us to think about these tough questions that come our way from our world because we need to be prepared with an answer for what we think. So let's just do this. Let's compare the slavery that's found in the Bible because they are right. There are instructions for slave owners in scripture. We need to look at those. We need to examine that. We need to be real about that. But as we do that, let's compare it to the American slavery of the African slave trade that we are familiar with in our recent history. 
In the African slave trade, people were stolen from their homes and their families, ripped away from their families. Families were divided and separated. Masters were brutal. Work situations were brutal. When we look at the way that people were not treated like people, but they were treated like cattle and they were treated like any other animal on the farm to do work. That's, that's what typifies, that's what explains, and that's what we can look back, and that is what the African slave trade was in our country. Is that what the slavery of the Bible was? That's the question. The answer is no. That's not what it was. The, one of the main chapters that you can compare, and just because of time, we don't have time, I would encourage you to go back and read the entire chapter of Exodus chapter 21. I want you to read that. The heading over it says, Laws About Slaves. And if you were to read that, here's what you would find. You would find that it was uh, not allowed. You weren't able to do this. If you did this, you yourself were killed slaves in the Old Testament, you could not steal someone and make them your slave, nor could you steal someone and sell them into slavery. If you were found to have a slave that was stolen by somebody else, but you bought them, both of you were killed, you and the person that took them. So that right there is a pretty major difference from what you find in the African slave trade. Another big difference is that you were not allowed to tear a family apart. That if you got a man as a slave and he had a wife and children, you had to take them too. Another huge difference between the African slave trade in our country and this kind of slavery that you would find in Exodus chapter 21. Another one is that it, the slavery in Exodus was not based on your race or your skin color. Huge difference right there. Uh, it's that if you look in Exodus 21, there are many laws listed that are actually to protect the slaves from unjust masters that would harm them or treat them too harshly, okay? So there's a lot of protection for them to be treated rightly. But then there's another one there. There's a detail about it that is completely separates what we think of as 2019 Americans, how we think of slavery versus the reality of what slavery was in the ancient world in Israel, and that's this, is that after six years of slavery, the seventh year, you were allowed to go free. But here's the detail. Unless you wanted to stay. That's curious. Why would a person want to remain a slave? That doesn't seem to compute because our idea of slavery is brutal, it's severe, and it's unjust. Who would want to stay a slave? There's actually a, a shorter description of this in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In verse 12, it starts, it says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you for six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. Listen to this, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Then verse 16, it says this. But if he says to you, 
I will not go out from you. This is the slave saying this. I will not go out from you because he, the slave, he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. And then it has this whole procedure of what you would do with that slave to make them a permanent slave. Because, But the whole point there is this. If the slave doesn't want to go because he loves you and because he is well off with you, he can stay. Slavery in the ancient world was not the kind of brutality or the brutal slavery that we would be familiar with in our modern day conception. Why would a slave want to stay? The simple answer to that is because very often people were more well off as slaves than as free men. That's the reality. That's even what it says there in the text is that They're happy with you. They're well off with you. If you were a slave to a family, you would then be treated as part of that family. You would be fed. You would be cared for. You would have a place to stay. Not just you, your whole family. In the ancient times, and as this would apply to Philemon and Onesimus, slaves were not only cared for, you were actually able to earn money. Yet another difference between the slavery that we would be familiar with and ancient slavery. And if you earned enough money, you could buy your own freedom. And so people would often stay slaves, maybe until they're able to work up enough money or just to take, because there's honestly not a better way for them to take care of their own kids. There's not another way to feed them. And so you would be a slave to another person. So under the right circumstances, just to be completely honest, Being a slave was the best thing for you if you couldn't make it in other means. That's how the Bible looks at it. That's that's what's there. But we should come to this, and, and we might still be saying, but Scott, surely, like, yeah, that's the Old Testament. That was the law. We're not living under the law. Surely we, as Christians, now have a different ethic. We approach this in a different way. Surely we must now look at slavery and say, no, we have to condemn this. We must say, like, no, like, we have to see Paul, like, advocating for the freedom of Onesimus. How else could it be? Well, so we arrive back to Philemon and Onesimus, and we have to ask how it is that a Christian could even own slaves in the first place. First place, How is this possible? How is this happening? Surely the Christian thing to do is to free Onesimus. Well, I think let's just take a second to stop and look at what it is in Philemon itself. If we were to make an argument that yes, Paul is asking Philemon to free Onesimus. What, we would look, what would we look at? How would we make that argument from this? I think there's three places at least that we could go in Philemon itself. First is in verse 16. We've already looked at it tonight, but let's read it again. It says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. When you read that, it seems like what Paul is doing is he is saying that you are no longer this, now you are this, therefore freedom. You're not a servant, you're now a brother. You could read that verse like that. Another place to go is in verse 21, where Paul is not being very specific, but maybe he is alluding to something he wants Philemon to do. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
Many commentators would say that that is Paul, though nowhere he really explicitly asks Philemon to free Onesimus, that when he says this, he's kind of hinting at what he wants him to do, that he's hinting, I want you to do even more here. That's an argument that you could make. But then another thing that you could do is you could go to verse 13. When Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. That statement right there, that almost seems like Paul is maybe trying to guilt Philemon in to not only freeing Onesimus, but sending him back to him. And that's the argument that could be made is that Paul doesn't want uh, Philemon to only forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but he actually wants to receive him back, forgive him, free him from his slavery and send him back to Paul because Paul has already said, he was very useful to me. So could I have him back? Could you send him back so that he could help me still? You could make that argument. And there are many commentators that do make that argument for Philemon. But I wanna show you the other side of the argument. And honestly, the one, the side that I land on that I don't think here in Philemon, Paul is actually advocating that Philemon free Onesimus. If you fall on the other side, that doesn't bother me. I don't think that changes the meaning of this passage that we've been looking at together. But here's how we could look at it. In verse 16, when it says, no longer is a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, it does not necessarily have to be that you cannot be one thing in order to be another, but rather it is you are more than, that you are not only a slave, but you are on top of that, now a brother. That's another way of legitimately reading that verse. If you were to look at verse 21, when he says, confident of your obedience, this is the second one that I pointed out earlier, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. There's hardly anything there that is specific that we can know there's no explicit request being made by Paul. And Paul could just be writing about the fact that he is planning on coming there and he hopes to have a guest room and there might be other things that he could do for him. So that's not really a strong argument. That's not really specific enough. But then if you were to go back to verse 13, so we're just going through all the previous arguments when he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. If you read into that argument that what Paul is trying to get him to do is to send him back, you're making the assumption that that's what Paul wants to do in the first place. But if you remember back to last week, what we looked at, when Paul was trying to convince basically to be very sneaky and, and, uh, and persuasive in asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus, he did several things. I think verse 13, when you read that, what he's actually saying is he's trying to uh, essentially let him know, like, look, I made a sacrifice to send him back to you. You should forgive him for what he's done. It's not necessarily Paul kind of begging for him to return to him and come back, but it's more so him saying to Philemon, Philemon, I gave up a lot to send him back to you. So would you please forgive him? I think that fits the context and the purpose of this letter more. That's what I see in Philemon. Let's go outside of Philemon. Let's ask the broader question. If Paul would have been wanting Philemon to free Onesimus, and that was one of his primary goals of this letter, don't, I think it is very suspicious that we don't have a more specific request 
that that is what Paul wants him to do. If he wanted something that drastic to happen, surely he would have been much more clear and much more specific about it, not just him saying, I want you to receive him back. So that seems pretty glaring. That's not an argument for what's there. It's an argument for what's not there. It's not a specific request or statement. But now, if you actually look outside of Philemon itself as a book to other places in the New Testament and a lot of the other writings of Paul, I think we're gonna be pretty surprised at what we see when Paul talks about slavery in other places. We're not gonna go to all of these, but if you wanna go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter three, we're gonna spend some time there. But in Ephesians chapter five, verses five through nine, Paul gives instructions to the Ephesian church about how slaves should obey their masters and how masters should treat their slaves well. There's not a call for freedom. There's not a call for masters to to free their slaves. You could look at 1 Timothy chapter six, verses one and two when Paul is talking to Timothy and he's, he's encouraging Timothy to command slaves to honor their masters and work hard for them. And this is the scandalous part that we were asking, should Christians even own slaves in the first place? In 1 Timothy, Paul says that slaves should work hard, especially for those that have masters who are Christians because it does your brother in Christ good to work hard for them. How do we reconcile with that? You have a Christian master, you should work even harder for him not a call for freedom. That's surprising. That's surprising. Even more surprising is this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, it's it's a call, again, for slaves to obey their masters, but it's not Christian masters. It's unjust masters. It's cruel masters. And so not only in the New Testament do we find if you're a slave to a Christian, work even harder for them. What we find is that if you're a slave to an unjust master, serve them faithfully, suffer faithfully. It's an opportunity for you to trust in the strength that comes from God only. And again, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 24. I know that I'm listing a lot here, but it's because this is a big topic and I want you to have as much as you can. 1 Corinthians 7, 20 through 24, Paul actually writes to slaves and he says that if you are a slave, don't worry about seeking your freedom. He actually says that. He says that if you have the opportunity to be free, take it. If you're already free, don't take the opportunity to go into slavery. But he tells them that if you are already a slave, be content with being a slave. Again, that is so surprising to see a consistent message all through the New Testament, not just by Paul either. We had Peter in there. Look at, I told you to turn to Colossians chapter three. And that one is very similar. But the reason that I want you to look at Colossians chapter three specifically is because if you remember what I said last week, that it's very likely we have reason to believe Onesimus and Philemon are part of the Colossian church. And so the church that Philemon hosts in his own home is the Colossian church. And so this letter to the Colossians is not just a letter to the church at Colossae, it's a letter to Philemon. But in Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 22, Paul is, he's, he's, <clears throat> he's giving a list of instructions and he, he gives instructions to husbands and wives, uh, not uh, husbands and wives, children and parents. And then right after it, just like he's going in a normal series, slaves and masters. 
And what does he say to him? Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Again, a call to obedience, not seeking your freedom. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. And then in chapter four, verse one, he has, a, he has something to say to masters. He says, masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, there's no call for masters to free their slaves. Because of that pretty consistent witness throughout the New Testament, and because a lack of a clear call from Paul to Philemon to free Onesimus, and because of what we find in Philemon itself, I don't think there's really a strong argument that what Paul wanted was for Philemon to free Onesimus from his slavery. That does not appear to be the primary problem on Paul's mind. If it's not the primary problem, what is the primary problem? What is it that Paul's so concerned about? It's what we looked at last week. The primary problem that Paul is trying to address in this short letter to his friend Philemon is the fact that two Christian brothers are not in agreement with one another. It's that they are, it's that they are fighting that one needs to forgive the other. How do we deal with this? How, how is this not a glaring problem for Christianity that we can come to the Bible and at the very least we can say, Paul and Peter and everyone in the New Testament that contributed to it, since there is not a clear call to abolish slavery, at the very least, we can say they don't really seem to care about it too much. They don't really seem to care that there's an institution of slavery because they're telling people, just be content where you are, serve your masters faithfully, masters treat your slaves well, and that's it. How is that not scandalous to Christianity? I think it's because there's a bigger problem at, at hand here. I think it's saying something that Paul saw the disagreement between two Christian brothers as being a bigger deal than the fact that Onesimus was a slave. Paul saw the lack of forgiveness to be a greater hurdle to Christian fellowship than a slave-master relationship. That's a bigger deal. Wow, that should blow your mind. Is there anybody in your life that you need to forgive? Is there anyone in, in your life, in our church, you need to seek forgiveness from? Paul seemed to think that that is a bigger deal in the church than slavery existing as an institution in their culture. That's a big deal. That's huge. I do think that scripture lays a foundation that is strong and eventually does eradicate any sense of slavery being okay. I don't want you up here, I don't want you to think that I'm up here telling you there's nothing wrong with slavery and you shouldn't care about slavery. That's not true. What I've told you is that the slavery they were dealing with was vastly different than pretty much any form of slavery that I know of in today's world. We should passionately seek for any unjust treatment of people to be taken care of. 
And we should unashamedly say that those who would treat human beings as subhuman will one day fall under the judgment of God. We should say that. But what we see here again, last week I pointed you to a principle. This week I want you to see another principle and that's this. The primary concern of Paul here in Philemon, but also in the New Testament is of a spiritual nature, not a physical one, not a social one, not an economic one. Paul seems to be after soul reform, not social reform. That's what he cares about. Soul reform, not social reform. He doesn't seem to be so concerned with the social and the economic aspects that were going on in their day and age. What he seemed to be concerned about was the fact that people had souls and that they needed to be reconciled to God. And that as you are reconciled to God, you're part of this family. And for some reason, a slave master relationship doesn't really change the family dynamic as much as a lack of forgiveness does. That's a big deal. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying this because if, if you were here this morning, you heard our, our brother, Pastor Moses, speaking about how it is, as Christians, we have a social responsibility and we do have a social responsibility and we should take those things seriously. But one of the things that, um, I, if you were uh, able to hear this morning, and I've heard a little bit more than, than you if you were here, because I've had the chance to have a few meals with Pastor Moses, is that I know the primary concern of their ministry and what they're doing in India with all of the different people that they're working with is not <clears throat> just purely to do nice things for people and to impact their society, but that those things are an inroad for the gospel to be proclaimed. And those are the things that are actively drawing people to Christ. He's told me that the types of people that the Christians in India are loving, no one else in India loves. And that is what gives credit to the ministry and to the message of Christianity. In Galatians 3, 28, it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. When Paul looked at Philemon, he didn't see a slave owner. And when he looked at Onesimus, he didn't see a slave. When he looked at both of those men, what did he see? Christians. You see, when you become a Christian, when all of us, there's so many different people in here, so many different kinds. There's young, there's old, there's men, there's women, there's cool people, there's weird people, there's all those different people, okay? But the label of Christian levels all other labels. It doesn't matter what else you are. Woman, man, young, old, you are a Christian in Paul's eyes and in God's eyes. And that is your identity. And that is who you are. And you might be wondering, Scott, why on earth are you taking this amount of time to just go over this stuff? Why is this important? When you look at yourself, you should not primarily see yourself as a man or a woman. You shouldn't primarily see yourself as a Republican or a Democrat. You shouldn't see yourself as young or old, a child or a parent. Uh, you shouldn't see yourself as black or white. You should see yourself as a soul that has been redeemed by God. That is your first identity. That is your primary identity. And when you look at other people in this world, you don't first and foremost see them as white, black, man, woman, young, old, Indian. You don't see those things. I see a brother in Christ. I see a soul that has either been redeemed by God or it hasn't. 
And if it hasn't, I should work towards that. That's what I should care about more than anything else. I, why am I going through all this? Why am I saying this? It's because our culture today, the reason that this is important for us to see is that our culture, specifically the political culture in our day and age, they want people, they want you to categorize yourself and to label yourself to be in certain groups based on small details about who you are. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm white. I'm black. I'm young. I'm old. I'm rich. I'm poor. But the word of God looks at you and says, no, you are none of those things. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is one Christ. You are all one in Christ. And that is your primary identity. That is who you are. We as a church are not primarily for social reform. We are for soul reform. So we should be willing to let anybody walk through these doors. I don't care who you are. I don't care what's wrong with you. Come in because you're a soul that's either been redeemed and if you have, come and worship with us. And if you're a soul that's not been redeemed, come and hear the gospel and become part of our family. We focus on soul reform because when you reform a soul one at a time, you eventually will reform the society. But if you focus only on trying to reform a society, that never reforms a soul. You can feed someone every single day all the way until they die and go to hell. Feeding someone will not impact their eternity unless you share the gospel unless you give them that message. We as a church should be very interested in serving those who are in need and being socially active, but we always do it in the name of Christ with the gospel on our lips, ready to share. That's what we prayed this morning when we sent out these, these Christmas shoe boxes. That's not a problem that kids don't have presents on Christmas. That's a trivial thing. The problem is that they don't have the gift of the gospel. That's our focus. And I think that we can see that that was Paul's focus in Philemon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you with heavy hearts for the broken and the hurting in our communities and in our world. God, we think especially of Pastor Moses as he serves in India among so many poor and hurting and those without hope as Pastor Tim reminded us this morning that those people aren't just in India, but they're also in our own communities. And God, we have a desire to serve them and love them, to show love to the untouchables that no one else will love, that no one else will care for. But Father, we do it with hopes that they will see not social reform and a social agenda, but a love of Christ that we would also go with the gospel on our mouths and that we would never fear to claim our true identity in Christ. We are all one in Christ. So Father, would you help us be concerned about the slavery that you are concerned about, the bondage and the enslavement to sin and the shackles of spiritual deadness and the destiny of hell for so many people. God, you do care about slavery. It's just a slavery of a different kind. It's a spiritual slavery.
and you have freed us from that slavery. God, would you help us and would you empower us to seek to reform souls, to see souls emancipated from the slavery to sin and to your judgment. God, we know that you are powerful enough to do that. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Scott from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.